Um, I had a, I went to a small, for my, my freshman and sophomore years of high school, I went to a small uh, private school in, in Los Angeles. It was actually uh, on the border between Compton and Paramount. Uh, and, I, and I tell you that because nobody knows Paramount, but many people know Compton. Um, and so that's right where my school was. It was about half black and half white school. Um, it was a great experience. There was a guy in, in one of my classes that uh, I didn't notice much. Um, he, he was there. Um, he was, I don't even remember, I think he was a grade ahead of me. Um, and he sat to the side. I, I, I knew his name, but we weren't really friends. We weren't in the same group. Um, I didn't know much about him. He seemed like a pretty just normal, average guy. Uh, he graduates, and as I follow and connected with friends over the next decade or so, um, I learned about his life, a lot of things that I, I didn't know and certainly didn't see or assume what happened in his life. He, he graduated and apparently had really, really good grades, and he got into one of the top, he got, with an academic scholarship, got into one of the top uh, black traditional colleges back in the South, uh, and went there for four years and graduated from there with honors. And then he went from there, and I think it was into the Air Force because he became a pilot. So he went into the Armed Forces and then became a pilot and was a pilot after that, and then took early retirement after that. And I think, I think it's a Chick-fil-A, that he owns, a Chick-fil-A, which I don't know how that registers for you, but in, in, in my world, in my thinking, that's really impressive. Um, he owns a Chick-fil-A, and, and now I've recently learned that he's running for office where, where he lives. This was a guy that I, I sat in class with, and again, I knew his name, but I, I just didn't, I didn't know him much. I didn't think much of him, and his, his life has turned out, he's done, in, at least in my estimation, these things that are are really impressive and kind of crazy and, and venturesome and, and, and amazing. And I, I just didn't see that in him. We all have somebody like that in our lives that, 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 we, that we know or that we've, we've walked with for a while, that, that they go on and do things and accomplish things and turn out to be people that way beyond what we saw or imagined, that we just missed them. We didn't, we didn't see it all. We're going to look at a story in Scripture in the book of Luke this morning where there's a lot of people who aren't seen. There's a few specific characters, and they're not seen for who they really are. And things happen in their life, and they, they change, and they are people that, that aren't fully seen. And, and I hope as we look at it and read it and study it together this morning that we see more of them, and that actually helps us to see more of who we are. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 7, and we're going to start with verse 36. Luke, chapter 7, verse 36 and for some of us, if you've read through Scripture before, this might be a familiar story. Um, there's actually similar stories recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, but they're not the same one, but there's a lot of similarities. I don't know if this was a common thing that happened. That it was. Some parts of it are, some parts of it are not. But it's a story where Jesus is invited over to a guy's home, and it's a religious leader's home, and he's called a Pharisee, uh, and he's got some influence and power, and he's got a really nice home. And, and what he does is he invites Jesus over to his house because Jesus is, is teaching, and people are responding to him and following him around. He's being known as a rabbi and as an influential and astonishing teacher. And so as a religious leader, as a Pharisee, he's a teacher as well. And he sees somebody else rising up, and he says, I'm intrigued by that, and maybe I feel a little bit threatened. But I'm intrigued, and I want to get to know him a little bit. I want to see what he's really made of, and so I'm going to invite him over to my house. And so he invites Jesus over to his house for really a banquet, a dinner party, to, to debate and discuss as learned men and influential men. In verse 36 of, of Luke 7, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went, meaning Jesus, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town 
who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Just to be clear, it's not just three people in this scene. There's only three people mentioned, but this is an awkward scene any way you slice it. It would be exceptionally awkward if it was just three people in a room and one of them was a lady crying on a guy's feet. There's a whole party going on. It's a banquet going on. Pharisee has a nice home, and, and it was common in that time to, um, to move dinner outside uh, or in kind of a courtyard setting or a patio setting, and uh, all their tables would have been lower, and so the, the guests that were actually eating at the meal would have, would have reclined at a table with their feet kind of off to the side. Um, it, it would be like if we were to cut this down half size and then, and then eat at it. We'd, we'd lean down with our elbows on the table and they were discussing, the men were discussing and kind of debating and, and getting to know each other. But what happened in, in those times was when there was this kind of a dinner party or a banquet, and it was in the courtyard or in the patio, uh, it would really be open to the public, which sounds weird to us because that would be awkward, but it was open to the public. And, and so the, the, the men that were discussing at the table would have food served to them, but everybody else was, was welcome to come in and listen in on the conversation. And so they could line the walls of the patio or the, uh, the, the, the yard and, and listen in. But, but not eat. They weren't to take anything off the table and eat. But, but, but the guests of honor would be sitting there, and, and it was open to, to attend. And so this woman, who apparently had lived a very sinful life, which just to, just to translate that, most likely meant, most think, the chances are that she was a prostitute. And so for her to come into that setting would have been really awkward, first and foremost, for her. She would have been ignored and looked over, and people kind of would have glanced at her and went, eh. That's weird. Why is she here? That's got to be awkward and uncomfortable for her. She'll probably listen in for a few moments, realize that she's not really wanted here, and then she'll move back out. Well, she doesn't do that. She actually shows up because she hears Jesus is there. She already knows Jesus and has had some kind of interaction with him or been influenced by him in some way by his teaching. And so she hears that he's there and wants to come be near him again. And, and so she scoots in, and, and probably people moved away from her a little bit. They didn't want to be near her. And so she got closer to, to Jesus and, and, then, and then stood there with her head down as his feet were extended away from the table. And and I think probably what happened is she just got lost in the moment. She probably wasn't even listening to Jesus. She probably just was remembering what she's already heard from him. Maybe they've interacted before and, and he's had a dramatic influence on her life in a moment, weeks in the past or months in the past. But in this moment, she's, she's thinking about Jesus and the way that he's treated her and spoken to her and met in her life. And she begins to cry. I don't know if you've ever cried when you don't want anybody to, to see you, but you, you try to catch it before it really comes out of the, the, the outer eye area and, and, and starts to crawl down your face. Or um, There's all different ways. If you blink a lot, it kind of wears it out, I think. And if you roll your head back and forth, it dries it out a little bit. There's all different kinds of techniques that I'd be willing to share with you. Um, there's very few of us that are just like, oh, I'm crying. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm crying. That, that's just, you're odd if you do that. But that's what happens is she's crying and she doesn't try to hold it back and and I, it doesn't say anything to this effect in the text, but as I, as I picture this and wonder what it's like, I wonder if she just lost herself in the moment. And she stopped caring that anybody was looking at her. And, and the first teardrop dropped on the ground. And I wonder if she wondered, like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I should stop crying. And then just didn't. And another one dropped. And 
another one dropped. And I wonder if she tilted her head just a little bit and started hitting on his foot. And over time, as she wept, overcome with emotion that it just poured out. I, I can't imagine how hard and how long you would have to cry to get somebody's feet damp. I've spent most of my life trying to keep my tears in. I can't, maybe collectively over the entirety of my life, all of my tears would, would get somebody's feet wet. But they got Jesus' feet wet. And then she's looking at it and she can't possibly care what anybody thinks of her at this point. Because she takes her hood down and pulls her hair out and kneels down next to Jesus' feet and starts with her hair wiping his feet. Which there's no way to make this anything other than absolutely disgusting. Jesus indicates later in the story that he hasn't washed his feet yet. He's been walking around in sandals all day and they're dirty and she's taking her hair out, which in and of itself would have been embarrassing and vulnerable. You just didn't do that. You women kept their hair up and, and tight and pinned back and not out and long and down. And she, she did that, not caring what anyone thought of her, making a mess of her hair and trying to clean his feet. And then she takes out what was common to, to most women at that time was to carry some kind of perfume with them. And it says it was an alabaster jar, which meant it was of some value, which to her probably meant more than it meant to others. It was one of the few things of value that she had. And in order to use it, you have to break it. It's kind of a one-time use thing. And she broke the, the neck of the, of the jar and poured it on his feet and rubbed it into his feet. And it would have smelled good. And people would have been trying to look away and yet looking and trying to pay attention to the heady discussion at the table and yet completely weirded out at the scene of this woman doing this really odd, bizarre thing. When you anointed with oil, it was on somebody's head, on their hair. It was never on their feet. She's lost it. She doesn't care. She's going for it and anointing his feet out of the emotion of whatever impact Jesus has had on her life. She was a sinful woman, but she learned that Jesus was there and she showed up and this scene takes place. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw that scene, he said to himself, so the Pharisee says to himself, not to anyone else, not verbally, not out loud, says to himself, he, he has a thought. If this man were a prophet, if this man were really a rabbi and a teacher, if this man was really unique and special and God had some new work that he's doing through his life, is if this man was really speaking the words of God, if he was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. Specifically that she's a sinner. If this was really a special guy sitting at my table discussing, he would realize that there's a a prostitute or a former prostitute or a woman of some kind of sinful background or a known life was touching him. And what he would have done is, is recoiled his feet. And he probably would have looked at her with some kind of disgust and said, out of here or in the back line, get in the back row. Don't be this close to me. That's what he would have done if he was a prophet. But he's clearly not a prophet because he didn't do that because this is who she is. She's not to touch somebody like that. She's not to really even be seen or be known. He would have he would have recoiled and commented to her. And here's the next verse, and it says this in verse 40. Jesus answered him, which is just baffling to me. Well, I mean, it's not because it's Jesus, but he's got a thought, you know? Like, he doesn't say it out loud. It's not part of the discussion of the table. He's got a thought, and Jesus answered. Jesus responds to him. 
even though he hasn't said anything. And he names him for the first time. So we got a name. So we move from Pharisee to Simon. His name is Simon. Simon, I have something to tell you. That's got to be weird. He responds with proceed or tell me, teacher. Tell me, what do you, what do you have? So, so Simon has no way of connecting it yet that Jesus knows his thought. He doesn't know what, what Jesus already knows about him. He doesn't know that he's already got a conclusion of the situation, that Jesus isn't unique and special and that this woman should be rejected and, and asked to leave. Tell me, teacher. And so he tells him a story, a parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. And here's the question. Now, which of them will love him more? Denarii is a, is a day's worth. Um, there might be a note if you've got a Bible open on your lap. There might be a note there that tells you that. But a denarii is a day's, day's wage for a day laborer. Um, if you do the math really quick, it's about two months of pay for a day laborer at 50. It's, it's about two years worth, roughly, for 500. So we're talking roughly two months' salary versus a two years' salary. And he says, hey, that's the debt that's owed by two different people. And it says they're not able to pay it. Um, I don't know how many of you, most of us have some kind of debt. I, in fact, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but there might be somebody in the room that doesn't have any debt, which is just amazing, and I wish I can grow up to be like you. But most of us have a, a, a debt of mortgage or a, a car payment or a credit card payment or a school loan or some kind of other loan. And we, we all know what it's like to owe somebody something, and it's just part of our society now where we just calculate it out. And, and unfortunately for many, it's this calculation that will never get paid off and we'll never get there, and it's kind of just this monthly slog that we pay and pay and pay, and we're not quite sure how it's going to end up, and it just might go forever. And so if somebody showed up and said, hey, sorry, change of plans, you need to pay up today, there's very few of us that could. We'll cancel out our debts. We'll, we'll pay off everything and be zeroed out. We don't have that capacity, ability. We don't have that much savings or retirement or rich uncle who could just sign a check and pay for everything. We, most of us don't know what that's like. And Jesus tells a story, and it's just so simple. You have a debt that you can't pay. Now, if we were to all raise our hands and say, yeah, we, we've got debt. We're, we're paying a credit card payment this month and next month and for the foreseeable future. Now, if somebody else raised their hand and said, oh, yeah, yeah, me too, you, you wouldn't necessarily start comparing to make yourself feel better. Well, hey, tell, what do you owe? Oh, that's more than me. I feel better. Hey, what do you owe? Wow, that's a lot less than me. I wish I was like you. I mean, we all, we all owe. We all, we all going to pay. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't solve anything that one person owes more than another. It doesn't change it all. They, we still can't pay it all if it was called for. And Jesus says to him, Somebody owes two months worth of salary. Somebody owes two years. If those both get zeroed out in the same moment, who's going to feel better? Who's going to respond more? Now, which of them will love him more? Which one will be more appreciative? Simon's answer makes total sense. He's a little perturbed because he knows he's, he's getting pinned in by this guy who's not a prophet because of the woman, but he's, he's sharp. He can tell a story. He can get me pinned in a little bit. And so Simon replies with, I suppose, which is like, eh, I shouldn't have given you the good hummus. That's what he's thinking. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Great. We'd all answer that way, right? The one who had the, the, the one that just all of a sudden got two years of salary just granted to them, gifted to them. Jesus responds with, you're really, really sharp. Translation, you have judged correctly. 
That's the true answer. That's the right answer Jesus said. Now get this. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon. So watch this scene for a minute. Jesus just went on this back and forth with Simon. And he says, hey, you don't know that I know what you're thinking, but I know what you're thinking. So I'm going to tell you a story. And it's going to come out a little bit, a few verses later, that I knew what you were thinking. You didn't know. And this is going to be great for everybody 2,000 years later to hear this. But hey, I'm going to tell you a story. Debt, okay, you answered correctly. We're good. And then what does he do? He looks at a woman who he's probably not looked at yet. He turns and looks at this woman who's in her own world, who's been rubbing his feet and kissing his feet. This weird, awkward scene where she doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Jesus turns and looks at the woman, but he talks to Simon. He looks at the woman and he sees the woman. And Simon's already seen the woman, right? Simon can already tell you all about the woman. He's seen her. He knows her resume. He knows what she's like. He knows what everybody else knows about her. He's already seen her. And Jesus looks at her and and he actually sees her. And he talks to Simon, but he's looking at the woman. And he's talking to Simon and he says this. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which would have been common. Greet, come into the house. No, 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 we're about to debate. I'm not going to be too friendly to you yet. I'm going to see what you got first. So I'm not going to kiss you even when you come into your house, which would have been normal, common in that culture for a man to give a kiss on the cheek as he came in. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I've entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, I let you know what nobody else in this room might know. But her many sins have been forgiven. Her many sins are forgiven. Not because she's kissing my feet, but they've already been forgiven because we've interacted several weeks ago. Her many sins are forgiven. As her great love has shown this behavior, this weird scene that she's doing, this extravagant waste of perfume and embarrassment and vulnerability, this is a sign of her love for me because she's been forgiven. Like two years worth of salary. That's immense. She's been forgiven greatly. She's been forgiven much. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Verse 48, then Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Not in the moment. The actual words that are used there is just a statement of what's already been true. Your sins have been forgiven. And we're all seeing the overflow of that, the response of that. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, not talking to Simon, talking to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus, in a moment, understanding what Simon is thinking but not verbalizing, turns and looks at a woman and begins to talk to Simon and talk all about her. Finishes talking to Simon and then finally addresses her and celebrates her and affirms her and welcomes her and honors her and declares what's true of her, that her sins have been forgiven, that her faith has saved her, and that her response of embarrassment and vulnerability and extravagance and waste and emotion is fully appropriate and fitting for what has transpired between them. That I've forgiven you, Jesus says, And so all of this behavior towards me is fitting to what's happened deep in your soul. When he looks at the woman and he talks to Simon, what he's saying is, I see her and I see you. 
See, Simon, you thought you saw me. You thought you saw me when she started doing this stuff with my feet. You thought you saw me and judged me to not be a prophet. You thought you saw her and knew her resume and her past. And you thought you saw yourself. And you knew where the standing of all of us fit in your mind. But the reality is, is you, you didn't see anybody correctly, accurately. So here's three questions for us. Hearing that story reading this text, understanding what's going on. Three questions that I think are so plainly and obvious and needed to be asked. What do you see when you look at yourself? What do you see when you look at yourself? We all have to pick one character. We're all one or the other. I mean, there's a spectrum and we toggle back and forth and we move back and forth, but we're either the woman who comes in and says, I'm in, I'm in need of a savior. I can't save myself. It's like, it's, if I were to put it in economic terms, it's like two years of salary, which I'm never going to have. I can't pay that. And so I'm in need of forgiveness. I'm in need of love. I'm in need of grace. I can't save myself. We're either there or we're at Simon that says, I think I've done the right stuff. I think I've fulfilled what I'm supposed to do. I've looked at the list of laws and I've followed it closely And clearly by being a Pharisee, by being in the upper echelon of spiritual leadership of this place, I I think I'm good and I'm okay. And we, we toggle back and forth of how we view ourselves. We're one or the other. I have a friend who, late in high school, before her senior year, tell you she grew up in a Christian home, although it was far from healthy. And not a, not a unique story, unfortunately. But heading into her senior year, she got pregnant. And she chose to, to not have the baby. She chose to, to get an abortion. And her response to that, amidst all of the great pain and shame and struggle of dealing with that on all the levels that a woman has to deal with, her response was, I'm going to, I'm going to do really good now. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to behave like God wants me to behave. I'm going to be good enough girl going forward because I was, I was bad. And so she started being really good on the outside and did all the right things and went to all the right groups and trips and sang the right things and read the right things and spoke the right things and behaved the right way. And after several years of doing that, it, it wore out. And she couldn't do it anymore. And she found herself pregnant again. And this time she, she had the baby. And now she was a single mom. And she said, I, I've got to go back. And I've got to go do the right things again. And I have to be the right person again. And so she tried that again. And, and she felt herself change and experience forgiveness to some degree, she would tell you. But not fully. And then she... I found a man who was following Jesus and they dated and fell in love and they got married. And then they got pregnant. And for the first time, she felt like this is, this is how it's supposed to be. And then before the first trimester was up, she had a miscarriage. And she went to an old familiar place. And she says, I, I haven't done enough of the right things. I haven't been a, a good enough girl. This is God paying me back for what I've earned. I've done bad in my past. I've made poor decisions. I deserve this. 
And through that and the help of others and a lot of prayer and a lot of humility and being humbled, she came back to realize that's not how God sees me. I'm over here. And and I need a lot of forgiveness. And I need a lot of grace because I I can't do it on my own. I've, I've tried over here a ton. I've tried to behave and do the right things for years and years and years, and it hasn't worked. And and I found myself stuck thinking that this horrible thing that's happened inside of me is is God leveling the accounts and saying, you did bad, and so then this is what what you get. That that thought crossed my mind that I felt that somehow in my my soul. And she ended up running back over to this side going, no, I, I can't do enough. I can't be enough. I can't follow accurately enough. I'm just in need, and I need grace. And she ran back over to this side and said, I've already received it all. Jesus has already willingly, instantly thoroughly, completely forgiven me. And he looks on me and he delights in me and he celebrates me. And she went through this journey that we all go through at some point or another. We're at some point in that journey of toggling back and forth. Can I do more and be more? Or am I just falling on my knees going, I can't. But how do you see yourself? For those of us that have come to the place of saying, I'm needy. I need grace. I can't earn it. There's so much that I can't make up for. And we look at Jesus and say, I I need what you're offering. That Jesus turns and looks at us and talks to us. And he says to us, I love you. You're forgiven. I delight in your attention. I delight in your worship. I delight in your wastefulness of time with me. Because I love you. And I'm ready to be in relationship with you. And I think much of you, and you're valuable. That's how Jesus sees us. And so when we ask the question this morning of how do we see ourselves, we've got to twist it just a little bit because we mess it up on our own so often, and so few of us have it even remotely close to the way that God sees us. And so we need to twist the question and ask the question, how does Jesus see us? How does Jesus see us? We so often think it's like Simon. Jesus, look at me. I did this right. I did this. Don't look over here, Jesus. I did this right. I did, don't look over there. I did this. The mystery of all of this is that owing two months of salary, Simon thought that. I barely, I barely have sinned. I barely need you. I need you like two months salary. She needs you two years salary. I, I need maybe two months salary to make up. And I think I might be able, if I can move some stuff around and funds around, I can do this. I think I can get there and pay it off. And so I'm fine. I was at a Good Friday gathering, one of my first years here at Mosaic. And we're getting ready for it and thinking through it and planning it. And it hit me all of a sudden, one of the reasons I really did not want to be a part of or lead a Good Friday gathering is that because we're going to lead through communion. And when we lead through communion on Good Friday, we can't help but look in the detailed clear specifics of what it meant for a human being to be crucified 2,000 years ago. To the God of the universe to humble himself and to become fully human at the same time and to be nailed to a cross and all that was, that he, he went through that and we were now going to taste in bread and juice the reminder of that. That that all happened and existed because of me that I was the reason for that. 
I didn't want to lead through that. I'm fine for that being true of you. I can, I can preach that. I can tell you that. I can pray for you for that. I can celebrate that. When we have to look at ourselves, when I have to look at myself and go, no, this is me. I needed this. Jesus had to go to the cross for me. How does Jesus see me? As a sinner, many sins. She had many sins. Her many sins, my many sins, led him to the cross that I am so valuable and so special and so precious to him that he would go to the cross. That's how he sees me. That's how he sees you. So we will gladly and painfully and humbly come to communion table over and over and over again, to Good Friday over and over again, because God sees us as worth dying for. That's not shameful. That's an embrace of the grace that he's given to us. Second question is this. How do we see others? When we're sitting in Simon's chair and we're looking at others, how do we see others? How do we see others? And and without talking to everybody in the room right now, if I can just talk to those of us who so easily slide into the Simon chair on this one, and we see others as very sinful and more sinful than us, and maybe needing to slide to the back row and maybe needing to slide out the back door and not being present in our dinner parties and our banquets and not being present too close to our lives because they might contaminate us because of their many sins that... That for those of us that that we can't almost help it, it just kind of flashes up and bubbles up in our minds. That if we can just talk for a moment, how do we see others? Do we see them as Jesus? There's this line that I read from this theologian this past week as I was studying. It says something like this. When all of the philosophers are dumb, it's a great way to start a quote. When all of the philosophers are dumb and don't offer a word of help or comfort, when all learning When all learning has no message to console the heart, and when sympathies hesitate to break the silence, doesn't that describe our world? When philosophers are dumb, meaning they don't help and comfort us. What we hear from them, the learning, the understanding doesn't help us. when all the learning that we can go do and all the research that we can go do and all the, all the seeking and the finding that we can do to, to, to help us on a heart level don't, doesn't console our heart. That's the world we live in. When sympathy hesitates to break the silence, when even our friends and our family that are close to us can't help and break through and aren't willing to risk and step toward us and help us in a time of need. When that is the world that we live in, when that is our context, dot, 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 the quote goes on and says this, that is when the Lord has something to say. That is when Jesus turns to me and to you and to everyone else that we see in this world and looks at us and says, my son, my daughter, be needy. Need me. Come to me. Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you have a debt that you cannot pay. And I'm ready and willing to forgive it. The Lord has something to say. How do we see others? What if we get to be the mouthpiece for that? What if we get to be the face of Jesus to somebody else saying, oh man, my many sins, your many sins, your messed up life, look at you, look at me. Hey, we're not that different. We're the same. Here's where we're different. I've seen the face of Jesus. I've experienced this wildly incalculable, mathematically not make sense, counterintuitive grace from the creator of the universe. I get to tell you that. I get to display that to you. I get to treat you as that 
that exists in the world when we don't think anything else does. We get to be that. Third question is this. How do you see yourself? How do you see others? How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? Simon missed him. Simon looked across the table at him and said, nope, nope. You're not special because you're not rejecting the one that we reject. In a world where the spiritual leaders were hostile to those most in need, Jesus was hospitable. Jesus welcomed her. How do we see Jesus? Does Jesus welcome you on a regular basis? If in any way, shape, or form, there is a hint that when you turn towards Jesus, that he flinches, that he turns away. You know what's fascinating to me about Jesus that we learn in this story? His feet weren't ticklish. <laughs> do you know what I would do if, that, if I was in his chair? Like I would, I mean, first of all, if you're crying, I'm like, quit, cry, quit crying on my feet. That's weird. Wait, you're wiping my feet with your, that, okay, hey, that tickles, stop. You're rubbing them with perfume. This tickles, okay? This is weird. He's not, his feet aren't, he doesn't recoil his feet one bit. You're, you're misidentifying Jesus. You're not seeing Jesus if you come to him at any moment at any time and he recoils from you. That's a lie. That's not Jesus. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Read this story over and over. If you're having a hard time seeing Jesus, read this story over and over and over. He looks at her and talks to another guy. He looks at her and says, your faith has healed you. He looks at her and celebrates her love for him. He looks at her knowing her full resume and everything that's gone on in her life and says, yep, we get each other. We're here. Jesus' face towards each and every one of us is first and foremost and always gracious. Jesus has this unique ability to hold both judgment and grace, truth and mercy in this container of forgiveness and offer it to us over and over. Her many sins are forgiven. Her extravagant love is what I enjoy. That's the face of Jesus. If you see anything else, you're missing him. I want to invite you to see him right now in the, in the bread and the juice that's laid out in front of us. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to continue to worship. And as you're ready, that you come to these tables quickly with a smile on your face, with everything about yourself fully present and saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for me and for all of me. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we're just, we're grateful, we're humbled. We need you. Jesus, I'm reminded of that other quote that I read this week that I forgot to say, but of a skeptic who came to know you who said it's shocking, morally anarchic story. This story is morally, does not make sense, it's chaotic. But all that matters in the story appears to be your capacity to forgive and so would we hear that and experience that and receive that this morning? That you want us to see first and foremost your grace and your forgiveness for each of us.